Hi everyone, I'm Cheryl McNeil Fisher. Dr. Kathy King and I want you to know you are important to us. We are thrilled that you're here with us today for another episode of Writing Works Wonders. Welcome to Writing Works Wonders. We're so pleased you're with us for this outstanding episode. Today is our special author interview with award-winning number one New York Times best-selling author, Brian Freeman. Get ready for another episode full of learning, laughter, and new ideas for readers and writers. So buckle up, buttercup, and get ready for an exciting, fun-filled event for reading and writing adventure with your fellow bibliophiles at Writing Works Wonders. I'm Dr. Kathy King, and I'm so pleased to introduce you to my fabulous co-host, Cheryl McNeil Fisher. <laughs> Thanks, Kathy. Hi, everybody. And I am have the master of the universe, the master of the website. Thanks, Kathy. Hi, everybody. We're so glad you're here with us today. And for the sake of our interview, we're going to take reading of your prompts at the end. I will let everybody know the prompt this week was for 75 words or less using the words frog, turtle, butterfly, dragonfly. And I started my new book about my sister and I with that. So there we go. Back to you, Kathy. Thank you. I hope you read your prompt response for us, Cheryl. It was a good one. So I am so pleased to introduce you all to Brian Freeman. Brian Freeman is a New York Times bestselling author of psychological thrillers sold in 46 countries and 23 languages. He is widely acclaimed for his You Are There settings and his complex, engaging characters and twist-filled plots. Brian's novel, Spilled Blood, won the award for Best Hardcover Novel in the annual Thriller Awards given out by the International Thriller Writers Organization. And his novel, The Deep, Deep Snow, was finalist for the Edgar Award for Best Paperback Original. He was selected as the author to continue Robert Ludlum's Jason Bourne series. And his first Bourne novel, The Bourne Evolution, was named one of the best mysteries and thrillers of 2020 by Kirker's Reviews. It is with great pleasure that we welcome Brian Freeman to Writing Works Wonders. Cheryl, over to you. Brian, we are so happy that you have accepted our invitation and you're here with us today. Welcome. Well, thank you. Absolutely. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here with all of you and I'm excited Good. to talk with you. The first thing I'm going to ask you, of course, is when did you consider yourself a writer, an author? Was it when you published your first book or I don't know, when did you consider yourself a writer? I've sort of seen this as my calling in life from a pretty young age. In fact, I can remember sitting in sixth grade class in California, starting in on my very first mystery novel. In fact, I can remember what it was about all these years later. It was called Checkmate. It was a murder mystery set amid a chess grandmasters tournament. You know, this was when Bobby Fischer and Boris Spassky were in Reykjavik. I had a great eighth grade composition teacher that really recognized 
my love of writing. She did something I think these days with all of the standardized tests and curricula a teacher would probably never do. She said, you know, when you come to my class, don't worry so much about the lesson plans. Just sit there and write your stories. That was what I did through most of her class. And after that class, I sat down and started in earnest on my first novel and spent about 18 months finishing that. So in my mind, I've been a writer my whole life. And that's really been how I viewed myself and sort of how I viewed life was through the lens of writing and storytelling. I guess it took a few years for the rest of the world to catch up with that opinion. But uh, (laughs) uh, for me, I've been a writer for a long, long time. What feeds your inspiration? Where do you get your story ideas? For for people that have read my books, you know, you you may may wonder, do you really want to know? Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> my, my, my wife says that uh, that she sleeps with one eye open. Um, <laughs> uh, I know that's uh, a loaded question. <laughs> you know, it's I don't necessarily know where the ideas come from. It, it's kind of like that's always the way I've seen the world. Um, there's there's a scene in one of my books, Thief River Falls, and Thief River Falls is actually. Uh, the story of a, a thriller writer in, in northwestern Minnesota. And so she and I have kind of a lot in common as character and writer. And Lisa Power is the, the heroine. When she's talking to a young boy and, and he's wondering what it's like to be a writer, and uh, she, she pulls the car off on the side of this dirt road kind of in the middle of nowhere and, and asks the boy, well, what do you see when you look out there? He talks about um, seeing, you know, the cornfields and, and the farms and the dirt roads. She says, well, you know, I, I see all of that, but I also see, you know, there's there's a body lying in the field and there's this, you know, sheriff's vehicle coming down the road, kicking up dust. And, and I know what happened to that person in the field and I know what's going on in the life of that sheriff. And I'm thinking about how these, the fates of these people are going to collide. That's actually, you know, a pretty accurate reflection, I think, of how a lot of writers view the world. It's certainly how I view the world and, and really always has been. I mean, I, I grew up in uh, in Chicago, but my family had this this little cottage up in Michigan that we you know go to on weekends and, and summer vacations. I can remember you know walking with my dad on on the you know through the dirt roads and cornfields, and I was thinking, well, what's what's going on inside that house, and what's that sound I'm hearing in the cornfield? I've always kind of looked behind what I see and tried to imagine the stories behind it, and I'm still doing that. So it, it's kind of like wherever I go, I'm seeing a couple different layers. It's the layer of what's actually happening, but it's also the the what if layer of of what kind of of stories might evolve from that scene. Brian, I've been reading some of your books and they're very exciting, so compelling. They really catch you. You're caught from the beginning with them. It's fun to get carried along with them. You don't want to stop listening and reading to them. You're really very, very good at drawing in the reader. How do you think that you create compelling stories? Is there something you're focusing on, a certain way that you think that you write? What can you tell us about that? Thank you. I, I I really appreciate that. My goal is always that, you know, you sit down in the evening with a bag of Doritos and the book and you only have a, a few minutes to get in another chapter or two. And the next thing you know, it's three in the morning and the Doritos are long gone and you realize you had to just keep turning the pages to find out what happens next. That's what I'm trying to do with the reader is is really, you know, engage them in such a way that they just have to keep turning the pages. And there's there's a few things that, you know, I, I focus on in, in doing that, uh, both structural and stylistically. Um, Structurally, when you read my books, I I think you'll see that I keep the the chapters generally relatively short. Usually they're only about, you know, 
anywhere from you know 1500 to 3000 words and it's a it's an easily kind of digestible chapter it's easier to keep the pace fast and and solid when you're dealing with that i typically try to always end my chapters with a hook or twist that kind of forces you to turn the page and find out what's going to happen next in the story um, and then a lot of times what I'll do is I'll actually shift to a different focus of the narrative at that point. And it forces you to read one more chapter to get back to where you were. But of course, then there's another twist uh, at the end of that <laughs> chapter. And uh, and so the, the result is it sort of propels you through uh, the narrative as you, as you keep wanting to find out, you know, kind of how all these twists come together. And there's stylistic things that that I focus on to try to keep the reader turning the pages. It sounds strange, but I always want to make sure that I never get between the reader and the story or the reader and the characters. I try to kind of remove myself from the narration. Uh, You know, we've got a lot of great prose writers in the thriller genre. Uh, but every now and then I'll, I'll read one of their books and they'll, they'll have a lovely passage and I'll, I'll kind of feel them sitting next to me, kind of poking me in the side and going, wow, that was, that was a great chapter, wasn't it? I never want to have the reader feel me with them when they're reading the story. I want the characters to be talking directly to the reader. I want the story to be going directly into the reader's heart and mind. And so I work very hard during the editorial process to sort of get myself out of the process. I'm pretty ruthless when it comes to editing, such that if there's prose that's really, really good, but it's really not advancing the story, or if it's not really giving you illumination into the characters, if it, if it ends up being a little bit self-indulgent, I'm trying to pull that out so that ultimately the story is lean and what's in there is just what you need to, to really make it come to life. I do that with the characters, too. One of the best questions I ever had from a reader was someone who asked me, if I was walking down the street and I met Jonathan Stride, my, my Duluth police lieutenant mm-hmm. that I've written uh, 11 books about Stride, if I met him on the street, would I recognize him? And I said, you know, I don't think I would, but I bet you would, because I very deliberately paint Stride and my other characters in watercolors. I want to give you enough detail to fire your imagination, but then I want you to fill in the rest of the gaps about that character in your mind, because if I give you too much detail, it's going to start weighing down the pace of the prose and the pace of the the narration. And also, I think if the reader kind of participates in creating that character in their minds, then they have more of an emotional stake in that character. And I think it makes them feel closer to that character. So so those are some of the things that I focus on to try to make sure that the reading experience is as as quick and compelling as possible. Those are great tips and insights. Uh, We can stop right here, I think, Sarah. I mean, (laughs) that's really something different. Thank you for sharing that with us. Do you hear from your readers often asking you about the series characters, the main characters like Jonathan Stride and Jason Bourne? Are you hearing from them, asking about things or talking to them, anything like that? And then if you do, how does that inform what you write? Yeah, I hear from readers all the time, which I, I love. I, I get emails from them. They post uh, to me on, on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and things like that. Uh, Instagram's a lot of fun. For some reason, it seems like a lot of my overseas readers, the ones who read the books on translation, end up posting about them on Instagram. And, and it's just it's just really, really cool to see, you know, readers in, in Turkey or, you know, Taiwan or the Czech Republic, uh, you know, posting about the books. And I, I have to use Google Translate to even find out what they're saying about them. You know, I learn a lot from readers about the books because I listen to what resonates with them. And that helps inform how I structure my stories 
and my characters. And, and you know, it's, it's funny because in a lot of ways it makes the world smaller too, because I find that, you know, it doesn't matter whether a reader is in Omaha or Santa Monica or uh, over in, in, in Italy or in Germany, uh, you know, they, they end up reacting to the same kinds of things. And, and I hear the same kinds of messages from them. So it sort of, you know, brings a commonality to the human experience that is very refreshing. I love hearing from readers. Uh, you know, I, this is why I do what I do. I like being able to, you know, deliver these experiences to the readers. And, and there's nothing like the power of stories to lift us out of our kind of everyday worlds and, and take us somewhere completely different. I get great thoughts from readers. I love how how attached they become to the character. The, the characters become very real to them. It's one of the reasons I've always promised readers that I will never kill off one of my one of my lead characters because it it compromises the ability of the reader to go back and reread the series and get enjoyment out of it. And I love it when when readers go back and read my books over and over again because I feel like they get nuances out of it each time that's a little different. Um, but when you kill off a main character, it shadows that experience for the reader. And they're never going to be able to read the series again with the same depth of enjoyment because they know what's going to be happening to that character later on. That doesn't mean I won't put them through hell, but uh, I'll, I'll, I'll try to keep them around. <laughs> That's a really good point. I hadn't thought of it that way. Very interesting. Thank you for sharing that. How do you make the decision that you're going to begin a new series? When do you know you're ready for you personally? Most of the time, it's the character that drives it more than me, really. When I start a new book, I'm I'm typically not thinking, oh, this is going to be the start of a series. Uh, and I, I know that other writers approach it differently, and they will dive into a book with the assumption that it's going to be a series. Um, with me, it, it's the reverse. I never go into a book thinking, well, this is going to be part of a new series. I want to see how the character evolves, and are there more stories to be told for that character. So, I mean, all the way back in the early 2000s when I was working on my debut novel, Immoral, that was my first Jonathan Stride novel, I really had you know no thoughts about turning it into a series. I, I thought it was going to be a, a standalone novel at that point. But there was more to be told about Stride, and, and readers and, and publishers really wanted more Stride. And so I ultimately you know started doing more Stride novels. And it's really been true on, on each of my series books. When I wrote The Nightbird, which was the first Frost Easton novel, again, was thinking of it as a standalone, and we ended up doing a couple more Frost Easton novels after that. And it, 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 it's sort of determined by you know whether there is more to be done with the character. And I contrast that, say, with my book Spilled Blood, which um, a lot of readers have asked me, are you going to do more with uh, Christopher Hawk and, and the characters in Spilled Blood? I said, I've learned to never say never, but I feel like that was a complete emotional experience for the characters. And I, I feel like it wouldn't work to kind of open it up again. Same thing with the Deep, Deep Snow, um, which was an Edgar Award finalist last year. The, the Deep, Deep Snow is the story of a young sheriff's deputy named Shelby Lake. I deliberately left open something at the end of The Deep, Deep Snow about Shelby's parentage. This was an Audible original. So when Audible talked to me about doing another book, rather than doing a straight Shelby Lake novel, I, I actually wrote The Ursulina, which is it's the follow-up novel and yet also a, a sort of a prequel to the, to the Deep, Deep Snow because it really tells the story of Shelby's mother. Those are probably my two favorite books of anything I've written, The Deep, Deep Snow and, and The Ursulina. And same thing, readers have been asking me, well, gosh, are we going to meet Shelby again? Are we going to meet Rebecca from The Ursulina again? And this is one where, boy, I, 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 I'm not sure because while I love the characters, I'm really, really attached to both Shelby and Rebecca, there is such 
emotional closure to their stories at the end of the Ursulina that it almost feels sacrilegious to, to open it up again and try to bring those characters back. So that's the kind of thing that divides me as a writer is, is I'd love to meet those characters again. And yet at the same time, it feels like their story is complete. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much, Cheryl. Okay. Let's talk about when you were approached to take up the reins for Robert Ludlum's Born. That happened to be the first talking book I ever listened to. And then here you are taking up the reins of this series. Wow. What was that like? Because you're so successful in your own series, your own books, and now you're being asked to pick up Jason Bourne. This is very special. Yeah, it, 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 it was such an amazing honor for me. I have been a Robert Ludlum fan my whole life. I can remember reading The Bourne Identity, the very first uh, book from Ludlum that started the whole uh, Bourne franchise, uh, all the way back in 1980 when it was released. So I was, I was what, 17 years old. And if you would told me back then that 40 years later, 40 years later, uh, <laughs> I'd, be, uh, I'd be publishing a book with, with my name and, and Robert Ludlum's name on the cover, I, I would have thought you were crazy. It was a really interesting experience to have them select me. And I, I was so thrilled because it, it felt like such an amazing opportunity to bring new life to a character and a franchise that I so enjoyed myself. It, it was also scary. I mean, the first your first reaction is, holy crap. And then the next reaction is, oh, holy crap. Uh, <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, the, the very first two words I wrote on my, my whiteboard were, uh, were have fun. Um, because mm-hmm. uh, it, it really, you, you have to remind yourself what, that this is so cool. I mean, as a writer mm-hmm. to be able to put my, you know, imprint on such a, a famous series and, and step into the shoes of a giant like Ludlum. I mean, that's just, it's just amazing. It was Odd, you know, people have been asking, well, was it hard to step into the shoes of somebody else's character? And I I was a little intimidated by that at first, but then I realized, well, you know, Mm -hmm. I've actually known Jason Bourne even longer than I've known Jonathan Stride or any of my other characters. Mm -hmm. I've I've known Bourne for more than four decades. Uh, So once I kind of thought that way, it, it made it a little easier. But I will say the second Bourne novel, The Bourne Treachery, was actually harder for me to write than the first one because the Born Evolution, which was the the first one, it felt to me like uh, writing an, an homage. I mean, I, I wanted to bring Ludlum's character back to life and and be have that authentic character feel like a Ludlum character come back to life, but in an all new setting. So it, it's sort of like a reboot of the entire series with all new all new plots, all new characters, a modern setting and surrounding. When I got to the second book, I felt like I had to give myself permission to make Bourne my own character and to allow that character to, to change and grow and evolve based on the things that were happening in my books and, and to realize that this character didn't just belong to Ludlum anymore, but he, he belongs mm-hmm. to me now too. And, and once I sort of accepted that and took ownership of that, then, then everything seemed to flow more easily. Yeah, that makes sense. And somebody someday may be saying, oh my gosh, I got to fill Brian Freeman's shoes <laughs> <laughs> in one of your series or something. We just never know. And I didn't mean this series. I just mean any of the other series you've written. So thank you for that, Kathy. All righty. So we want to think about, you know, also in that respect, how did that actually play out in how would you say the experience has been for you? 
Yeah, it, it, um, the way it all came about, I got a call from my agent. This was probably, oh gosh, three and a half years ago, I guess. Uh, and she told me that Putnam had taken over the rights to the Bourne series from, from the other publisher that had been handling it. And they wanted a new writer to take over uh, the Bourne series. And was I interested in tossing my hat into the ring? I'd, I'd been a Ludlum fan for so long that I said, yeah, let's, let's give it a shot. And um, gosh, it must've been probably four, maybe five months went by. I didn't hear a thing. Uh, I assumed they'd decided to go another way, which is fine. I'm sure there were a lot of ri- other writers that were, were interested in the opportunity. Uh, and then I got another call from my agent and, and, you know, she said five words that will linger in my mind for a long time. Uh, you know, Putnam wants you for born. So that was when I, I got on the phone with uh, the editor at, at Putnam and, and talked about kind of my vision for how to bring Bourne into the modern era and, and really stay true to the character, but reinvent the entire series. Uh, he loved that idea. And we went from there. And one of the things I'm most proud of with regard to that first book is that he passed along the, the completed manuscript to the estate and they came back and did not want to change a word. Uh, that, that made me feel really good because it, it felt to me like I had brought the series back to life and, and really done justice to what, uh, what Robert Ludlum had always tried to do. I have to confess, I was a little intrigued that they chose me only because my own books are very, very different from Ludlum's novels. I mean, I write really more psychological thrillers uh, that are kind of inside the heads of the characters. I had not really done sort of pure action adrenaline-based thrillers the way uh, Ludlum writes. But I also think that was what appealed to them because I think Bourne and what, what has made Bourne such an enduring hero is that he's a fractured, psychologically complex hero, and he's struggling with questions of not only his memory, but sort of who he is, and is he a killer or is he a moral man? And and I think those sorts of deeper questions are really what, what give the series its power, and, and I think those are the kinds of themes and issues that I really like to deal with in my books. That sounds like, you know, just a wonderful opportunity and the way that you could see new ways to be able to take that, you know, and offer your strength to the series to bring it further. I find it so interesting that your wife, Marsha, has a Facebook page, and I love that it says the author's wife. And so people understand right away that they're talking to your wife. Sounds like the two of you have a great partnership. What part of the business does she work with with you? Yeah, yeah. Marsha is, you know, not only my partner in life, and, and we've been married since 1984. So we that that's great, because it means we, we know each other really well. And we can kind of finish each other's sentences, which which helps a lot. Um, and, and so yeah, she's, you know, my partner in the business, I, I, I kind of think of her as really sort of the, the, the CEO of B Freeman books, and, and I'm kind of the VP of creative development. She coordinates all of our, our events and she works on uh, social media and builds a lot of our marketing presence uh, online. And she, most importantly, is also my first reader and, and editorial critic on, on each new manuscript. And when I finish a new book, the first thing I do is put it in her hands and she goes through it and makes very, very detailed notes on everything from the minor things like, you know, grammar and, you know, missed words and things like that, all the way up through the big picture questions of, you know, how have the characters been fleshed out on the page and what works and what doesn't work in terms of how the plot comes together. 
And she knows even less about the book when she starts reading it than, than any of you would, because at least you've got things like the online descriptions and jacket copy and, and things of that nature that describe what the book is. She doesn't have any of that, uh, and very deliberately, because we don't want her being biased in any way of knowing what I'm trying to do before she starts reading it. She wants to be able to do a completely cold read so that she can decide, have I realized the vision that I was going for? When you're a writer, you get so close to the story and the characters that sometimes it's harder to get that perspective on. You know it so well, but have you conveyed to the reader what your message is? And and are they understanding things at the level that that you do as the writer? Marsha's really good at being able to find those things. And when she's done with it, then we have sort of a marathon process of, of going through the manuscript, going page by page. I will not pretend that that is not a difficult process <laughs> for both of us, but we've, uh, we've we've learned patience over the years as to how mm-hmm. we do <laughs> yeah it's great and i do want to acknowledge thank you when ron sent us the message about wanting to know what your book covers look like you didn't just went right in that day and put in that description which is amazing by the way thank you for doing that and I can use the feedback from all of you folks, too, about the kinds mm-hmm. of descriptions that work. You know, I was writing the description for the Born covers, and I, and I was thinking, well, I'm referencing how the colors work in there. And so, well, is that helpful or is it not helpful? Um, and, you know, again, I suppose it depends at what point, if someone was cited and understood colors before, well, then that's meaningful. Mm-hmm. But if not, is it not a meaningful description? Honestly, any feedback that you folks shoot me later, that will just help me in developing, you know, more powerful descriptions that I can put on all the other covers on the site. That's great. Ron, you may unmute. Hey, um, Brian, I did want to acknowledge what you did with your um, alt text tag for the uh, cover. It was helpful and I did give you a tiny bit of feedback, but it was super. Leave it to an author to create a really, really good descriptive text. So I wanted to ask you a question about development of your stories. When you're creating a story, how much of the story do you know when you begin And how much of it do you discover as you go forward? Should I have the story all laid out in my head before I start? Or should I just start writing and see what happens? So I'm curious how you approach that. Because you're writing a lot of action, a lot of detail. There's a lot of work here. So how do you approach that? That's a great question. And first of all, let me say, just say, I I appreciate you bringing that to my attention on the alt text. I I would like to say that I have any kind of text savviness, but not much. So I I truly didn't know what a lot of these boxes meant on the maintenance side of the website. So now I do. So that's terrific. Yeah, good question. I'm going to start from the end first, as in, should you know everything that you want to know before you start? Usually what I tell other writers is not to feel constrained by rules. I usually feel that if you're if you're feeling like you're tying your hands with rules or I have to do it this way or I have to do it that way, you're not giving yourself the creative permission to really follow your own muse. So uh, I would say you, you got to do what feels right to you. If you know how the story should start, even if you don't know how it's going to finish, well, start. You already have something in mind that, that's going to start carrying you forward. And I think that as you go, then you'll start to feel the, the rest of the story come together. For me, there's kind of a couple different layers to that because there are a couple different layers to most of my stories. The first layer is the backstory. It's kind of who did what to whom and why. And that kind of thing I typically know before I start. So I I usually know most of the secrets of the book um, before I start. And I understand kind of what the, you know, what the nature of the crime is and, and who is involved and what the motives are. Those are the kinds of things I, yeah, I, I know those before I start. 
But the second layer is how do I reveal those secrets to the reader in a way that creates the most drama and suspense? And that can change a lot as I'm actually telling the story. So, you know, I will do an outline before I start, but I've gone away from doing very, very detailed outlines. In in the early days, I used to write really detailed outlines before I started a book. And and it was useful because I was kind of, you know, getting, you know, my, my hands around the idea that this is what I did for a living. And it was kind of a useful crutch to be able to have a roadmap for where I was going with uh, the story before I started. I have less of that now because I, I like the spontaneity that comes with being able to let the characters and story, you know, take shape on the page. And, and I'm always massaging the the story as I go um, because I'm I'm sort of reading what the level of drama is. It's sort of like a a sculptor constantly kind of polishing and and just changing little things as you go. I'm always working on that in order to make sure that the story is as compelling as possible and the characters are as vivid as possible. So I don't like to tie my hands too much before I start because a lot of that spontaneity really feels, you know, fresh and interesting for the readers. So I, I typically know what's going to happen in terms of the the background of the book, how I will actually tell the story, a lot of that becomes much more spontaneous as the words get on the page. All right, Jane Tolino, you may unmute. Hello. The question that I have is, what do you do when you and your editors and publishers have a real face-off about something you think should be in the book or they think should be and there's a disagreement there. How do you let that either be contentious or just working together to get it sorted out? How do you deal with that? Yeah, that, that's a good question. There's a couple things to think about. First is I confess that I always feel that I can usually tell when an author reaches a level of success that they conclude that they no longer have to listen to their editors uh, because I can see the the polish and sharpness of the manuscripts start to decline. And the bottom line is their editors exist for a reason. Editors aren't writers, they're, they're readers. And I think as a writer, you have to appreciate that the editor can see what doesn't work on the page. And they may not be able to tell you how to fix it, but if they're spotting something, you, you really need to be able to listen to that. And you have to have the the emotional distance, because I mean, you get very emotionally attached with your your manuscripts, to be able to step outside yourself and say, okay, what is it that I wanted to convey that's not getting to the editor in this process? And if the end result of that is that you still feel like it's right the way it is, then I think you you stand up and say, no, I I really don't want this changed. But I also make it a point to to listen and feel like if they're right and I'm wrong, that I'm going to accept that and, and I'm going to think about ways to do that. And I've had both of those kinds of situations come up over the years. I've had editors come back with suggestions on things that I ultimately concluded they were right. They that could I could do it in a better way. In one of my books, The Burying Place, the editor felt that the ending was too bleak. It was too tragic. And she wanted something more uplifting to be able to, to give the reader a little bit more affirmation at the end of the book. I intended The Burying Place as sort of a dark tragedy. And I told her that, well, you know, I'm as I go through the book again, if I get to the end and I can figure out a, a better way to end it that that is less tragic, I'll, I'll do it. And right up until the last few chapters, I hadn't come to terms with that. And then just as I was getting to the, the, the climactic chapters, I saw a way to, to be able to modify the ending that 
really changed the outcomes for the characters, but actually involved only uh, deleting, I think, one chapter and writing a couple new ones. And ultimately, I felt like she was right. Uh, It made it a stronger book because it was not quite as dark as it started out. And then ultimately, the book became a finalist for Best Novel in the Thriller Awards. So I was, we were we able to agree that, yeah, we hit the right sweet spot with that. There was another book where uh, the opposite was true. I wrote a book, it's in the Stride series, called Marathon. And it's a very emotional, difficult novel, deals with a lot of hot button issues. And my books do deal with a lot of difficult issues. And I, I never want to deal with them in black or white. I always try to deal with them in shades of gray and kind of put it in front of the reader and let them draw their own conclusions. There was one issue on this that I really disagreed on. The last line of the prologue marathon refers to the idea that it's basically about a bomb that's going to be going off. And it was inspired by what happened in, in Boston. The last two lines of the prologue of the book are, you can't stop science. You can only stop hatred. And my editors wanted me to delete that last line because they said, you know, you can't stop hatred. And I just vehemently disagreed. I said that I felt that, A, morally, I did not believe that sentiment. And I said, you know, ultimately, the entire thrust of the narrative of this book is to try to reach a point at the end of the novel that gives the reader some hope and faith that people with very different value structures can indeed find common ground and come together. And I said that line ties into the whole conclusion of the book. So ultimately, when you read Marathon, uh, that line is still in there. Uh, and that was that was a battle that I, I felt was worth fighting and where I was right and they were wrong. So that's ultimately, I think, what it comes down to. I mean, when push comes to shove, generally speaking, Editors tend to be pretty good at acknowledging that the, the writer is the one that's putting their name on the book and, and they should really have the final say on what they want to put out there. At the same time, the writer then owes it to the editor to, to really listen seriously to what they have to say and, and to think about whether they, they have in fact found something that, uh, that needs to be changed in the book. Wow. If it's three in the morning when I'm still up reading your book, can I call you? That's my question. <laughs> Just let well, me know. You know. Yes. Um, yeah. My, my phone may be uh, muted, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. My real question. I'm a I'm a poet. I write poetry, mm-hmm. but I I'm always interested in how different authors, yourself particularly, what's your process in those nine to five, what's the process or does it vary? I just, I love hearing that because it's very helpful to me. Well, two things. First, I I would say if if you have not read any of my books, I always recommend people start with The Deep, Deep Snow, uh, that uh, for a long time, readers would ask if I had a favorite among my novels. And and I I could never say that because it's kind of like, you know, picking your favorite child. But The Deep, Deep Snow, there there is just something about that book, that and the Ursuline novel that are really my, I think my two favorites of anything I've, I've done. With regard to process, there's a few things. One is I don't like to keep my process too consistent um, because I feel it's easy to get into a rut if you're doing things the same way all the time. So I tend to change a lot of things as I work on different books. I will change where I write. I will change, am I writing indoors or outdoors? I will change the device I'm using. Am I using a desktop? Am I using a laptop? Am I using an iPad? I, I feel like I get too comfortable in my space. It's too easy to kind of fall into to ruts and routines and patterns. So I like to kind of shake things up a bit in, in terms of my writing routines. It's kind of a balancing act. I, I always feel that the best writing process is a lot of different 
things pulling together in different directions. And what you want to be in is in that sweet spot in the middle where all that, that tension of all the different factors that are going into your writing process. Most of my actual writing tends to get done in the afternoons. I'll, I'll reread what I've done for the past several days uh, and edit and polish the, the, the material that I've done recently. And that kind of pulls me back into the story and the characters such that by the time I get to the afternoon, I'm kind of back inside the world of the characters in the story, and then I could kind of start moving it forward. You know, I was in the traditional nine to five workforce for so long that I still see writing as my nine to five job. So I tend to work Monday to Fridays. Where where my office may be on any given day may change. I have a pretty heavy schedule, you know, for for writing these days. So it you, you can't let yourself get too uh, too casual because otherwise things don't get done. So. <laughs> Next up is Deanna. I was kind of intrigued by the fact that you look at what you've just written and then make a few changes to get into sync. It sounds like you have a whole lot of confidence and possibly starting as a child for getting that positive feedback on your writing. Well, that's a great comment and question. And I I think you've really put your finger on, on kind of a key aspect of the writer's life. I certainly would not can call myself confident. I, I think uh, I think most writers, doesn't matter how many books they they publish, tend to be you know ultimately very very neurotic about what they write. And uh, I, I think one thing I I do have have always had is a heck of a lot of determination. I don't let external voices stop me, and I don't let my own voices stop me. And I think that's a really good point. I mean, honestly, when I talk to aspiring writers, I will usually tell them. Uh, a variation on on what you just said, because I feel that writers most often tend to be their own worst enemies. I mean, we're the ones that psych ourselves out and, and we, we, we write a few pages and convince ourselves, Oh, well, you know, this, this isn't any good. And and we, we put it aside. Um, So I usually tell writers that the best thing they can do is to really keep at it and, and keep getting those words on the page and not to let yourself, you know, get, you know, dissuaded and and to try to evaluate quality while you're in the midst of it. I mean, I'm constantly editing my work. If you gave me, you know, one of my earlier books right now in, in published form, I'm confident I would take a pen and start, you know, making changes as I go. That, I don't that think, think that ever, uh, ever changes, but the ability to just sort of keep going and, and get to that finished product, I think is so important because it, it again it is awfully easy to to psych yourself out i mean i think that that's simply a part of the the character of most writers that they don't have that essence of feeling like they can they they can do it and they're they're always second guessing themselves and questioning themselves and you, you have to be able to recognize that is part of the process and still be able to face that empty page uh, i mean i'll i'll tell you i've written probably 26 27 thrillers. And you would think that having, you know, done that as many times as I have, and and having had, you know, some success along the way, uh, that it would have gotten easier along the way. And boy, it it never does. Uh, With every book that I write, I face the same crises of confidence, the same challenges, the same waking up in the middle of the night and going, oh, you know, this time the book's never going to come together. If I have a day where a chapter is really not coming together on the page, I, I obsess about the idea that, well, I'm, it's not coming together. It's never going to come together. This is just, you know, why am I doing this? I, why am I a writer? And, and I finally at least have begun to reach a point where it's not that that ever goes away, but I can at least tell myself, you know what, try not to worry about it because it's going to be different tomorrow. And if the chapter's not feeling like it's coming together today, 
tomorrow is going to be different and it's always been different and always will be different. So, you know, that you, you have to allow that other voice into your head to say, you know what, relax, just keep following your instincts. Just keep trying to get those words on the page. And in the end, the, the person that it most counts with is yourself. I mean, you have to be happy with, with what you do. Thank you, Brian, for being with us today. I know everybody's anticipating what you have coming up next. So will you please share with everyone? This is a very busy, a very busy year. The, the follow-up to The Deep, Deep Snow, the Ursulina, came out in February. And it was already out in, in audio, but then it also came out in print and ebook in February. I just love the Ursulina. It's the follow-up novel to The Deep, Deep Snow. It's an enormously emotional uh, book. Honestly, every time I pick up the, the last page and, and start reading it again, I, I break down and cry again. It, it's it's just a very mm. emotional book to me. But I actually have three more books coming out before the end of the year. It's just a, an insane wow. year this time. Uh, and they're they're oddly coming out in exactly reverse order of, of when I completed them. So the, the, the book that I completed most recently is my third Jason Bourne novel, The Bourne Sacrifice. And uh, that's actually the first novel that's coming out. It's going to be out uh, on July 26th. And then only two weeks later, uh, I have a standalone thriller, a really, really sort of unusual out there thriller called I Remember You. And that's out on August 9th. And uh, we just got an amazing starred review in Kirkus uh, for that book. The reviewer refers to me as fiendish Freeman. Uh, so <laughs> I, I think I'm going to have to have a t-shirt made that, uh, that says that. Uh, and, then, uh, and then November 1st, um, Jonathan Stride is is finally back. It's been a couple of years since I had a stride novel out. So the zero night comes out November 1st. And that is, I believe the 11th Jonathan stride novel. So I got to, I'm going to be keeping readers busy between now and the end of the year. Well, congratulations on all of that. That's great. Thank you again for being with us. Thank you so much. We appreciate your graciousness and being with us. Your website is. It is B Freeman books. Dot com. That's all one word, bfreemanbooks.com. And you can also find me on Instagram or Twitter at bfreemanbooks and on Facebook at facebook.com slash bfreemanfans. So I'm, I'm everywhere you go, you can find me. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. We really appreciate it. And thanks for sharing the website, bfreemanbooks.com. Well, thank you thank so much. You. It was a real yes. pleasure to chat with everyone. Yes. Yes, Great. we're so glad you're here. And next week's prompt is 75 words or less. You're going to grab us with your beginning sentences in a thriller mystery. Thank you again, everybody. Kathy, you want to close this out? Thank you, everyone, for making this another amazing episode. And a special thank you, of course, to Brian Freeman. Next week, we'll have a writer's chat. Bring your ideas, questions curiosities about writing and we will put our minds and thoughts together to give you some strategies be sure to visit readyworkswonders.com above all else we wish you to be encouraged and inspired and enjoy the wonders of writing we look forward to being with you all next time our prompt for this week was to write 75 words or less using the words frog turtle butterfly, and dragonfly. And since all of you are always so courageous, I will go first. I don't have a title, but here we go. My sister and I have our backpacks filled. We jump on our bikes. Whoop, whoop, here we go. Adventure awaits us. We pedal real fast and we wave to our friends and the neighbors we know. Quietly we walk 
to our favorite place. While butterflies whisper and dragonflies sing, the frogs make a splash, but the turtle steps out, waddles to greet us to see what we bring. Next is Carol Mackey. But first, I want to say, everybody, get out there and get the Writing Works Wonders Prompt Creative Writing Prompt book. It is a wonder. I just got a copy of it. Okay. The response is, the title is Onward and Upward. If a frog and turtle are struggling up a steep hill, who would they turn to for the helping hand they need, the skill? They'd want agile lifters with wide wings and strong arms and good grasping fingers. To lift them on their way. So as the frog and turtle hop or pace as each may, there the dragonfly and butterfly will pull them on the way. And at the summit, when they reach the top, they will all in total exhaustion flop. Thank you. Thank you. And Ron Brooks has his hand up. Hi there. So um, I did put this prompt on. Uh, this came to me almost fully formed. It was really fun. Such a cavalcade, such a parade. Butterfly floating, turtle plotting, dragonfly hovering, diving and darting, and frog ever joyous, croaking and hopping. But a parade to where and for why, no one could say, but that's the way it all started that day. It started with floating, plodding, darting, and hopping. Next came a noise, chaotic and heart-stopping. Frog bounced back, knocking dragonfly down, into butterfly, onto turtle, plodding the ground. And that's where I stopped. Thanks, Ron. (laughs) Thank you, Carol. Go right ahead, Marlene. <laughs> I just I just wanted to say I really enjoyed all the prompts on the page. I think everybody did such a fabulous job with this one. I had this written, and I had uh, 12 lines. It's a poem. And um, so I was checking my word count and everything. I thought I had like 10 words left, but I didn't have the last line highlighted and I didn't realize it. So I didn't have the extra 10 words, but anyway, I wrote a sonnet, but that's um, too long. So I'm giving you the lyrics version. (laughs) 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 Nocturnal meandering. Frog croaked a warning from his hiding place in the grass while turtle slowly ambled across the treacherous road to pass. Dragonfly buzzed a lookout from the midnight sky up above, while butterfly flitted among flowers, leaving sweet nectar with love. Fortunately, Turtle completed his trek across the road in the dark of night. Dragonfly buzzed, frog continued to croak among the flowers, butterfly continued to alight the end. Thank you, everybody, for sharing. Mm-hmm. 
that was really interesting. Thank you for joining us today on Writing Works Wonders. Kathy and I are thrilled to spend time with you. A tap on that button that says subscribe so you will not miss our show. You can also tap on the link for writingworkswonders.com. It'll take you directly to all the show notes and information that we shared today. Then you can sign up to receive the Zoom link so that you can be live with us when we are recording. You can also contact us at info at writingworkswonders.com. Our phone number is 347-467-0221. We also have a donate button. All donations go to technical expenses that Kathy and I incur in order to keep this podcast going. Kathy and I want you to feel encouraged and inspired and know the wonder in writing. And until next time, our friends, keep on writing. Opinions expressed on ACB Media are those of the respective program contributors and do not necessarily reflect the views held by the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff.